after all that singing, had to refresh a little. So good morning, everyone. I, uh, I seem to have found my way up here again, and I hope that you are not too disappointed by that. Uh, in keeping with our series through Mark, I'm going to go through Mark chapter 6 today. There is a lot going on in this chapter, uh, so you know how your Bibles have those little subtitles for the different sections and many stories within the chapters. Jesus heals the paraplegic, Jesus restores sight to a blind man. This chapter has six of those stories, which is a lot of events to kind of tie together and take a look at. Um, but since I know there is a football game that a few people are interested in, we can probably be out, I don't know, 30 minutes or so before kickoff. Uh, that's still 6.30 p.m., right? So that was a really lame joke, and anyone who did chuckle, you're extremely generous, and I appreciate you. And anyone who didn't, I can't blame you. That was really weak. So, um, I do want to go through the chapter, though, and look at events taking place, uh, give a bit of context to the story, help us understand the person Jesus, hopefully a bit better, and then I'll try and tie it together with some themes and insights in a so-what-does-that-mean-for-us style uh, conversation. Uh, that I hope God will use to help us all grow a little closer to him. Also, hopefully this does seem like a good way to go through today's chapter, since I did not prep a plan B. Uh, So if you would join me, let's start with a prayer. Jesus, you are alive today. We are blessed to be gathered here together as a community to praise you, to worship you, and to grow closer to you through examining the word you have given us. We ask that we may be filled with your Holy Spirit to bless our minds, bless our hearts, and bless these words, that they may be pleasing to you and work to deepen our faith and strengthen your church. Amen. So as we open up Mark chapter 6, we find Jesus and his disciples entering Nazareth. Uh, Jesus uh, is rejected in this town, as this is the passage that was just read. Um, Like prophets that came before him, his own family turns out to be his harshest critics. Uh, So in this chapter, uh, he's preaching on the Sabbath, and they're saying, where did this man get these things? Then they start asking derogatory-style questions. Isn't he just a simple carpenter? Isn't he just the son of Mary and Joseph? His brothers and sisters turned out normal. What's wrong with him is kind of the the feeling we get from that. Uh, And it says, the people took offense at his simple beginnings, and he could do no mighty works there. So the thought I had on that is, why do people take offense at others growing? So these questions and this type of thinking are derogatory in any context, not just as it relates to Jesus. We know that he's the fully divine son of God, but this type of thinking is used against people all the time. You know, what's he know? He's just that farm kid from West Alexandria or that army brat from Kentucky. We are all just something. And that has absolutely no bearing on the power of saying things that are true and holy. Jesus was speaking truth, and no matter what town he lived in, or what his dad's, his earthly father's job was, what he said was holy, powerful, and true. Now, generally, the rest of us aren't claiming to be God, and it wouldn't be true and holy if it were, if we were. But these family members are the same family members who we saw reject him the night or in the story of Jesus' birth. They turned him away. Uh, he was just some ordinary person to them. And all of the things that had transpired up to this point didn't change their mind. They had been present for the Immaculate Conception, the visiting of the wise man, the sign of the star, his conversations in the temple as a child that amazed the elders, the miracles he had already performed, and the testimony of following disciples wasn't enough to open their eyes to who he truly was. All the explanation and truth they would ever need to justify their faith they had 
and it just wasn't enough for him. So do we ever reject meaningful truth because it's coming from someone who just isn't good enough to be saying it? I think that's a worthwhile question. There is another line here of why could he do no mighty works. Uh, Brody referenced this last week about I'm going to come back to this kind of in the end as we wrap it up. So the next section that we see in verses 7 through 13, uh, he recalled the 12, sending them out two by two, gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing on their journey except a staff. And then in any town that will not receive you, shake the dust off your feet as testimony against them. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil, many who were sick, and healed them. So out of this next mini story, uh, Jesus' divine authority is demonstrated. So we talk about, you know, he's only got three options. Is he crazy? Is he possessed? Or is he the son of God? And so this is furthering that statement that he is who he says he is. He's giving the authority to cast out demons. Uh, and this is, this is that evidence. So in this case, we can see from the story of what the disciples accomplished, Jesus' power, matched with faithful execution of his will, changed many lives in the towns that they traveled to. This also uh, is interesting because it sets a precedent for sending them out. This is a kind of an example of systematic training of the disciples. So this is how they're going to have to execute their ministry once Jesus is gone. And so this is kind of a neat little glimpse into the training of the disciples to carry on the church after Jesus uh, after Jesus's crucifixion. And then the other thing that's here that I always found interesting is there's this line, shake the dust of your, off your feet as a testimony against them. Um, that always struck me as a little odd, and so using this opportunity, I went and did a little digging into it. So what it is, this is a reference to Jewish tradition uh, to shake the dust off of your feet as you cross the borders from a Gentile land back into Jewish land. Um, and it's not as hostile as it sounds to me, at least when I read it. So the implication isn't malicious. It's just your judgment's in God's hands, and I'm not claiming that anything great has taken place here yet. So it's just kind of a a traditional thing that they would have expected to hear as part of being sent out uh, and encountering a town that didn't accept them. So the next section, uh, after this mini-story, we get into something a little bit more heavy with... uh, them learning about the death of John the Baptist. So it starts with, Herod hears of Jesus' miracles and the rumors flying around about him. And those were things like, he is John the Baptist raised from the dead, he is Elijah, he is another prophet. And in fear and guilt, Herod says, John, whom I I beheaded, has been raised. And after that opening section, uh, it then tells us the story of how Herod came around to killing John the Baptist. So Herod married, uh, marries his still-living brother Philip's wife, Herodias. So John calls Herod out on this. It's not lawful for you to marry your brother's wife. What is interesting to note here is that Herod wasn't a Jew. He was a Roman tetrarch. And as such, Jewish law didn't apply to him. And so this is an example of John teaching Herod the moral laws of Judaism. So he's trying to hold him accountable to a law that's moral and not the legal laws um, that he was actually subject to. So Herodias holds a grudge against John for saying that her marriage to the Tetrarch isn't valid and wants him executed. In response, Herod does arrest John and throw him in prison. But at this point, Herod doesn't have him executed. In Mark 6.20, it says, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, meaning John, he, as in Herod, 
was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So what we can picture here is these are prison conversations. So Herod, in order to appease his wife, arrests John and throws him in jail. Uh, and then rather than killing him, he's going down there and visiting him. They're sitting in, you know, each side of the cell having conversations. And John is here, you know, preaching, you know, the moral law and Judaism to Herod. And, and it's, it's kind of working. Herod is greatly moved by this. He said even though it perplexed him, he listened gladly. And so this is kind of the status of where things are at this point in the story. So now Herod is hosting a banquet for his own birthday. He's got nobles, military commanders, and everybody around him affecting his position who's important in attendance. And as part of the celebration, Herodias' daughter, Salome, came in and danced for the entertainment of the crowd. And apparently it goes well because Herod tells her, ask for anything you wish and I will give it to you up to half my kingdom, which is apparently an expression I looked that up to. He didn't literally mean that, we don't think. Uh, so Salome goes to her mother, Herodias, and says, what do I ask for as a gift from the Tetrarch? And Herodias tells her to ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So Herod feels caught since he likes John and is enjoying these conversations, but his kind of reputation and authority is at, at stake here since he just made a promise in front of this crowd. And he chooses to go with the political pressure, and he does order an executioner to go down and behead John the Baptist, brings the head up, presents it to Salome, who turns around and gives it to her mother. And so when the disciples heard this, they came and took the body and laid it in the tomb. So this event, the knowledge of how this went down, is now sitting with the disciples at this point in time in Mark chapter 6. So this is all freshly on their minds. Um, John was extremely popular. He had a huge following, widespread message. Um, and if the disciples had been thinking that, you know, we're getting pretty popular, our numbers and our support's going to protect us, any illusionment about that is now, is now gone. Plus, you know, they knew the guy too, so um, a couple of things weighing on them heavily at this point in time. And so the next section, 30 through 44, the apostles came back to Jesus. Uh, they told them all they had done and taught. He said, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Uh, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And so this kind of calls back the conversations we've had in, in Brody's messages about the crowd and the call. Um, so the call is for a personal relationship with Christ and conversion into faith. And the crowd is there wanting miracles. They're, they want their demands to be served, and it's wearing on them. So they went on this arduous journey where they had to rely on the people they met. They've been preaching to crowds and performing miracles, and they've been beaten down by that. And now they have that news of uh, John the Baptist's death on top of it. And Jesus says, you guys need a break. Let's, uh, let's go take a break. And so they're all tired. Um, and they load up in a boat. And they set off for a place away from the town so that they can escape the crowds and rest. But at this point, they're a pretty recognizable group of popular people. And it says some people run ahead on land and tell surrounding towns. And a crowd is already gathered on the shore waiting for them when Jesus and the disciples arrive. And in verse 34, when he, Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. So he had this plan about getting away and taking a break, and there was the crowd, and they needed him, and he took compassion on them. So this says that this indicates uh, something I think we already know, but Jesus' heart can be moved on our behalf. The nature of God is unchanging, but a part of that nature 
is that his love for us can move him to show compassion. Uh, It says, when the hour is late, the disciples came to Jesus to suggest that they send the crowd away to go to the nearest towns to find food. And Jesus says, you give them food. The disciples here protest, should we go into town and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them? For perspective, a denarii was a day's wage, so they're using 200 days wages as an estimate. Um, And then we know the rest of the story. Uh, The disciples gather up what they can find, which amounts to five loaves and two fish. Jesus prays, breaks the bread, and distributes it to the crowd, seated in groups of 50s and 100s. And in the end, the disciples gather 12 baskets of leftovers. We're all pretty familiar with that story. So this is a cool miracle, but why is it significant? What can we take from it? And so I think in the context of Jesus and the disciples' exhaustion, it's another demonstration of his compassion. We captured that. He didn't send them away, even when it would have been easy, even though there was a really good reason to. And even though that has to be what he and the disciples wanted to do most in that moment when they were so exhausted. Instead, he served them. And further, I think it's another example of him offering assurances for our faith. Uh, This crowd had come to him to hear him teach, and he had spent the better part of a day blowing their minds with truth, and there must have been someone or many someones there struggling in their unbelief. So Jesus helps their faith along uh, along and feeds it says 5,000 men, so it's them plus all their families, and feeds them in abundance from nothing, uh, demonstrating that nothing is impossible, and this visual display would be the nugget that kind of helps some of those people still struggling. Like, like, he's saying these things. It's just really hard to accept, and all right, here's, here's a sign for you guys. So he's, he's meeting them where they are and helping them along. So after feeding the crowd, uh, this jumps into the next mini story here. After feeding the crowd, Jesus sent the disciples ahead to Bethsaida, and he stays behind to dismiss the crowd. So, hey guys, this has been a long day. You go ahead and get your rest. I'm going to stay here and see everybody off. Um, And then he goes up a mountain for personal prayer. When evening comes, he is alone on land, and the boat with the disciples is still out at sea, making their way back to Jesus. It was slow going, and the wind was against them. So I did look it up, the lake that they were on. I'm blanking on the name right now, but it's a terrain feature where there's a lot of high mountains around it and so it catches horrible windstorms that pop up suddenly and make it slow going so we've seen these disciples stuck in a boat on the water before and here they are again trying to make headway in the waves and the storm that kicked up around them and so at the fourth watch which is sometime between 3 and 6 a.m he as in jesus came to them walking on the sea meaning to pass them by which is kind of odd phrasing So this is actually a reference to a few different things. Uh, So first, it answers the disciples' question in Mark 4, 41. Who then is that that even the wind and sea obey him? Uh, And that's where he walked out and calmed the storm in their boat with them. So they had previously been in the same tough situation, in a boat, in a storm, and Jesus calms the storm and tells them they have no reason to fear. So now that the disciples are here again in the same situation... uh, his intent is to subtly remind him of the previous lesson. Additionally, it kind of mirrors God passing Moses on the mountain to provide a glimpse of his divinity uh, and is a reference to Job 9, which states that it is God who trampled the waves in the sea. And so Jesus is out here literally trampling the waves, which is, which is interesting. Um, and the disciples would have been familiar with all of these things. So I'm, I'm not you know, a literary English professor trying to draw all the strings together in a story and say everything's representative, but these are all things that the disciples would have been familiar with, and so any 
one or a number of them could have been a, a reference that makes sense to why was he intending to pass them by. Uh, it's kind of a progressive teaching thing. He's already come and done the hands-on instruction, got in the boat, calmed the waves, and now it's a, hey, hey, remember, we've done this before. You guys don't need to be afraid here. As it turns out, it also foreshadows Jesus' frustration with his disciples because they missed the point completely. Verse 49 says, But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. So, despite his original plan, Jesus speaks up, calms them down, gets in the boat, uh, and stops the wind. Uh, they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So, the easy point to pull out there is that we, like the disciples, are prone to miss the obvious, and Jesus is thankfully a very patient teacher. And then in the final section, Jesus heals the sick in Gennesaret. Uh, this is where Jesus and the disciples uh, land the boat. Uh, they're told that when they get out of the boat, people immediately recognize him, ran about the whole region gathering the sick. They implore Jesus to allow the sick to touch the hem of his garments, and the chapter concludes with, as many as touched it were made well. So, you know, he's back, they're back on mission. They went and they attempted to take a break, didn't really work out, and now they're back out doing the work. So what does this mean for us? What do we get to take out of this chapter to help us better understand the purpose and mission of Jesus and our role as followers of Jesus through the lens of the events that we went through today? And I think, I think there's a few things to highlight here. Uh, I also want you to think about what from this chapter stands out to you, um, whether it's just kind of running through the events together now or if you read it ahead of time like Brody's been talking about. Um, I certainly don't have a monopoly on insight, and I don't have any special quality that makes me more capable of talking about Jesus than any of you. So today I just happen to be on this side of the microphone. At the end, I'm going to ask if anyone has any other thoughts they want to share. Uh, we are a congregation of peers who are here to love Jesus and have the opportunity to grow together. That doesn't mean there has to be, but I'm going to offer it. But the three things that I want to call out. Uh, the first one is, uh, this, is this whole chapter serves as a rep to reinforce the type of teacher that we know Jesus to be. So he is, a compass- he is compassionate and can be moved by our pain, our prayers, and our needs. He meant to walk by the disciples in the storm. He changed course to come to them in their fear and misunderstanding. He planned to get away from the crowds and rest when they came to him anyway. He taught them into the evening and then fed them all so they would not struggle to find food at that late hour. He gives us everything that we need, and then in our weakness, when we still fall short, he comes and gives us more. This is not a hard truth to accept. Uh, I think this is a takeaway that we can feel relieved by and give us reason to celebrate and be comforted, which makes it a little bit different from my next point. Uh, So following Jesus well... Loving him with all your heart and serving with obedience does not mean that the way is easy. The disciples were given a hard task. They were told to trust completely in the Lord and sent to walk and teach and walk and teach and walk and walk and teach. Um, They were allowed to bring nothing with them, and they had to trust entirely on the people that they would meet. For them, following Jesus meant doing something that was very uncomfortable. John the Baptist was a righteous, God-fearing servant of the Lord, and he was beheaded for telling the truth by a man who was protecting him, who knew that he was a righteous and good man. He did all the right things in God's eyes, and in end, obedience for him meant prison and execution. And then we can look at Jesus himself. Jesus was God's beloved son with whom he was well pleased. And he, following his father's will, for him following his father's will, 
meant that he took on the full burden of the wrath in God, of God for all the sin of all the world and suffered death and torment out of obedience. So obedience to God and being a good Christian does not necessarily mean comfort in this life. Uh, so I think a lot of times it's tempting to think that we will be spared from pain as a reward for our faith or from the other perspective, do we think that when bad things and tragedy are happening around us that we are being punished? I can't read Mark 6 and think so. Uh, this is a much harder truth because I want to judge my circumstances by the circumstances around me in this life. My comfort and my joy seem to be dependent on events and people around me, my health, the comfort of my loved ones, security and safety. Uh, and the truth is, it just isn't about all these things that I can easily see, feel, and measure. I can't purchase blessings and comfort through my actions, and faithful obedience is no promise of peace in this life. That's why it's important that when we look at the works of Jesus in the Gospels, that we see uh, that his great works and his mission, as I hit the mic, um, are all about being relational with him and not transactional, which transitions me to point three, which has a bit more of actionable insight. The great works of Jesus' ministry were not the miracles that the crowd saw. His family approached him in unbelief. They found every excuse to discredit him. As he stood there speaking truth about God's kingdom, surrounded by disciples who could attest to his miracles and crowds of people who showed up and gathered for the purpose of seeing those, this passage says he could perform no great works there. He laid his hands on a few people and healed them, and he marveled at their unbelief, and then he went about other villages teaching. The unbelief of his family did not stop him from being who he was. Jesus doesn't need us, our cooperation, or our permission to be who he is. But his purpose is for the changing of our hearts. And by God's will, that does require our consent. Jesus doesn't force us. The Apostle Paul may have a slightly different take on that, on his road to Damascus. But at least in general, we are invited to accept him, not forced. Hearts changed to allow for a personal relationship with him are the great works. We are Christians in the New Covenant. Uh, We talked about that the first time I ever got up here. Uh, Personal relationship with Jesus is the only truth with any eternal significance. He is who he says he is, and that means something about who we are. And we have to know that in order to receive the Holy Spirit, whom he sent to guide us at the time of his ascension. That's how he said it. Have a relationship with me. I will send my Holy Spirit into you so that you may have a relationship with me that continues now that I'm physically gone. So it means something. Now, it's okay if we originally came to Jesus for the miracles. It's okay now to ask for relief or strength, or relief or strength for wisdom, to share the burdens of our hearts. We all struggle with our circumstances, and we should bring our joys and concerns to the Lord. But our faith cannot be dependent on our expectation about how we want our concerns addressed. Are we coming to Jesus open to following him in faith relentlessly, no matter where that leads us? And can we accept that discomfort might be part of the plan? Or are we expecting that the reward for our good behavior is comfort? Are we here because we will love and, or are we here because we will love and follow Jesus regardless of the consequences? Or are we here looking for what he can do for us in this life? Now, sometimes the healing of miracles remove what blinds us and helps us make space to allow Jesus in. The blind man who now sees may look to the one who restored his sight. 
the larger portion of that gift was not the restored sight, but the removal of the distraction that kept the blind man from being open to faith in Jesus. It's easy to think in our own lives, if I only felt better, I'd be a better Christian, or if I was less busy, I'd be better capable of following Jesus. If I didn't have insert problem here, I would just be so much better at doing all the things God wants for me. This is transactional. That's what the crowds wanted. If we're doing it right, or rather, if we have that personal relationship with Jesus, loving him comes first, and there isn't an excuse that we make our love contingent on. So the goal, and not that I have this figured out, uh, but it seems to me that the goal should be to love Jesus in our struggle and discomfort and love Jesus in our abundance and our success so that we rejoice no matter the circumstances of this life because the significance of the greatest tragedy or the greatest earthly triumph is entirely trivial next to the reward of that everlasting relationship with him. So that was a lot of me talking. Or at least it felt that way to me, so it may or may not have felt that way to you. So now I'm going to ask, does anybody have any thoughts that came from this chapter or that came up as we were listening to kind of me recount those events. There doesn't have to be, but I don't want to miss out on the opportunity to hear from any of you. Uh, and, and you can totally disagree with me. That would be okay, too. Uh, you, can, you can tell me I was wrong about something. Yeah, I know. That's different. We've never done anything like that before. Okay. It's all right. There totally doesn't have to be. Um, but like I said, I, I have no special qualifications. I just spent some time in it and read and did some research, and, and every one of you is just as capable, if not more so, than I am of doing the same thing. So um, thoughts are welcome. But we can, uh, we can conclude with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to come together as a community of Christ followers who are here to love you. I pray that you use the words of this gospel to grow us in our faith and instruct us in becoming better followers, followers of your son, Jesus. Open our hearts and minds to your truth and call us to action in your service. Amen. And then finally, if you would stand for your benediction. Lord, let us depart today joyful in your complete and perfect sovereignty. All of the earth happens in accordance with your will, and whether we are comfortable or uncomfortable, sick or well, we have the peace of your eternal promise and a relationship with your Son. Let the peace of your perfect plan overwhelm us that we may become mirrors to reflect your glory every hour of our lives. Amen.